welcome to My Favourite Beatles Song, the podcast where we celebrate the music of the Beatles with a distinguished guest. And today with me is broadcaster, journalist and author, David Hepworth. Welcome, David. Thanks for having me. I always ask two questions of my guests, first thing. Uh, number one, if you were to rate yourself as a fan of the Beatles on a scale of one to ten, where would you put yourself? <laughs> And I'm sure you never get a straight answer to this question, and I'm not going to disappoint you by giving you a straight answer either. Uh, because, you know, I kind of, I'm increasingly aware that I meet people who are, I would say, bigger Beatles fans than me, and certainly know a lot more about the Beatles than I do. And what all those people have in common is they're, you know, they're less than half my age, because you know, that's the interesting thing. Because my relationship with the Beatles is, uh, you know, is better expressed in terms of longevity. You know, it, it started in 1962, I suppose, uh, and it, it still goes on today. You know, so, and I, I was reminded again by, you know, the, the death of, uh, of Her Majesty the Queen a year ago. You know, that then left the Beatles as the only constant, pretty much constant in my life for a long, long time. You know, you get to a stage where your parents have died and other family members and so forth. And you look around, you think, they've been part of my life since I was 12 years old. Uh, and that's quite an extraordinary thing, you know. So uh, I'm sure there are other people who, who are definite tens in terms of uh, being Beatles fans. I wouldn't attempt to compare with them. But I challenge them to have longer service than I've had. Excellent. And I always ask guests if they've ever had the chance to either meet any of the Beatles or their entourage or see them live. I've I never saw the Beatles live. Um, I uh, I've met Paul McCartney a few times, uh, and I never met any of the others. My friend and colleague Mark Allen, he, he met. Uh, I think he's, he's definitely, he definitely met George Harrison. He famously got George Harrison to do all the Beatles autographs for him on an album, on an album cover. And, uh, and apparently George was so practiced, practiced at doing this that when he came to time to forge Paul's, he put the pen in his left hand and forged Paul's. <laughs> you know, That's great. I, yeah. I always liked that. And I'm sure yeah. he's met Ringo as well. But I, I've met Paul McCartney a few times. And uh, mm -hmm. Paul McCartney has this brilliant um, knack of when you meet him, he, he goes, oh, we met before. And of course, you, you may well have met him before, but if you're Paul McCartney, you kind of assume you've met everybody before because you probably have. <laughs> you have has a totally different relationship to the rest of humanity from the relationship the rest of us have, you know. Um, so yes, and uh, and obviously various people who've kind of worked for them over the years, and uh, you know everybody's got a story. None of the stories marry up in my experience at all. <laughs> Paul McCartney famously said there are a million stories about the Beatles, and they're all true. <laughs> I like that. Yeah. Yeah, and so when you met Paul, were they mainly in interview situations? No, I've only interviewed him once. Um, I well, let me see. First time I met Paul McCartney. Yeah, when we just launched Q, so this would be 1986, the year after we had the first ever Q Awards, which were in a very kind of modest situation at Ronnie Scott's in Soho, and he and Linda came, and they came early, and they came so early, early that they helped us lay the tables. That's how, you know, hand-to-mouth the thing was. 
And then I subsequently met him because he, he wanted to do... When he was pretty much going back on the road, this would be late 80s, early 90s, very bad with dates, and he wanted to do... He wanted everybody to go who went to have a free programme, souvenir programme, and he wanted it to be better than most of these things were. And so he was prepared to pay for it to be better and to build that price at the ticket price. And so, you know, I met him I met him a couple of times then and then we did another one a few years later and I met him then. And then I, I interviewed him in... Um, 2019 for the Radio Times for the anniversary of Abbey Road. Um, you know, you, you can never get over the fact. It's like all rock star interviews. On the face of it, you, you appear to be, you know, an island of calm. Whereas inside, you're actually going, oh my God, that's Paul McCartney. Look, over there, it's Paul McCartney. And because the other thing about rock stars in my experience interviews are nonsense really you don't want to hear what they think about anything really you don't even want to hear them sing you want to just look at them you just want to watch them behave and that i've decided is what is great about get back the film is mm. it's the greatest prolonged opportunity to watch a band behave in cinema history that's the gripping thing. Oh, look, he's turned up in a new coat. Oh, you know, oh, what's he done with his hair? You know, all that kind of stuff. Look at who was smoking and who wasn't smoking. What sandwiches have they got? All that stupid stuff that we all claim to be above, we're absolutely fascinated by. That's, the truth. Oh, that's right. I'm sure it was you who interviewed Dylan and, and you said in your piece that at one point his PR came in and said, how's it going? And he said, he keeps asking me questions. Which is a perfectly fair point, you see. And I, you know, at the time I thought, oh, well, this is a bit ridiculous. And actually, now I, many years later, you know, it's nearly 40 years later, now I think he's completely right. Because why do we ask Bob, De particularly Bob Dylan, why do we ask Bob Dylan questions? What do we think he's going to tell us that he hasn't already decided to tell us? You know, this is a man who's written millions of songs, done millions of performances. Do we think he's holding something back? Do we think he's going to go, oh, all right, I wasn't going to tell anybody, but since you've asked, <laughs> I've decided to spill this. It's nonsense. And, uh, and the truth is, you know, if they talk... We ought to just let them talk and listen to what they say. Because Dylan's approach is very different to McCartney's, who seems to have dealt with that by having his set routine already. He almost volunteers it, doesn't he? He does, definitely. It's a well-practised uh, performance, you know. Or was it, don't they always say that the Rolling Stones, Mick and Keith, are always called the Glimmer Twins? Because the idea is what you have to do is just give people a glimmer. Give them a glimmer. <laughs> And, uh, you know, Paul McCartney is a world expert at giving a glimmer. You know? <laughs> that, there's nobody greater at it. Yeah, I, I've had a few guests who've met him on, and um, it's, it's amazing how many times the same story comes back. And, and he's, he must have said it so many times, so many stories he says, you know. But he seems quite cheerful about it, which is very different to Dylan, who can't be uh, Absolutely, yeah. He's, <laughs> no, Paul McCartney has completely come to terms with it. Because yeah. yeah. Paul McCartney likes it. Paul yeah, McCartney he likes being like, Paul McCartney. He, he loves being Paul McCartney and he likes the attention. He's never got bored with the attention at all. A lot of people do. They find it more annoying than anything else. I don't think he does. Sure. 
I, well, I can't leave this section without mentioning that I was listening to Abbey Road on Audible and um, because Paul McCartney wrote an introduction to your book. Oh, right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So it comes up with author Hepworth McCartney. So that, that's a pretty good uh, Oh, come on, really? <laughs> God. <laughs> Oh, that's um, one of those bizarre things in in publishing. Yes, yes I, should look, right. I should look out for that. Hepworth and McCartney. I've got a credit. <laughs> I've got a credit. So the song you've chosen to talk about today is Twist and Shout. It was recorded at Abbey Road on February 11th, 1963, and released on the Please Please Me album on March 22nd, 1963. It was also released as the lead track on an EP, Twist and Shout, which was released on 12th of July, and in the US on Introducing the Beatles, 22nd of July, and as a single, actually, uh, on March the 2nd on the Tolly label in March 1964. It, of course, did very well in all those uh, scenarios. I won't go through all the chart placings, but it is interesting. I'm reading that um, David Reese's book about 1963. And at this point, actually, in September 1963, they had a number one with the album, the single She Loves You and the EP Twist and Shout. They were all there. The EP sold so well that it actually charted in the singles chart. Mm. So those are the facts. Please tell us why why you chose this one as your favourite. Um, well, I suppose if I've had a, a kind of small campaign over the last few years, it's to um, redress the, the the imbalance in in the public picture of the Beatles, uh, which appears to have been passed into history, which is that it's all about something called songwriting. I don't think it's anything to do with a thing called songwriting. I think it's to do with, you know, performance and making records. You know, the Beatles regarded themselves as recording artists. And I think it's very often, you know, it's good to remind ourselves of that. You know, Frank Sinatra regarded, regarded himself as a recording artist, you know, didn't write songs. Did he shape performances? Oh, yes, he did, you know. And the Beatles shaped performances sometimes as songs that they had authored, but also on very in many occasions, as in Twist and Shout, they authored records that were around songs that they hadn't actually originated. And I don't think the genius of the Beatles is all to do with their songwriting. I think the genius of the Beatles is the Beatles. It, it's those people. It's it's those three singers. It's that combination of vocal attack and instrumental attack put together. It's their extraordinary joie de vivre at that time and their uncanny ability to put that over in song. And the interesting, the kind of parallel ability of of people like Norman Smith at Abbey Road and George Martin, you know, to capture that. And one of the things I think about a lot is um, it's very instructive, I think, to, to, to think about the Beatles alongside another great group who also came from the north of England, round about the same time, 
who were, you know, their equals in many senses, the Hollies. And the Hollies could all sing. The Hollies could all play. I saw them live a couple of times. They were a fantastic live group. The Hollies didn't really originate anything. You know, they, they, they wrote their, some songs themselves, and most of them came from kind of American hit factories. And they, they're great records, but they don't have that kind of edge of slight strangeness uh, that the Beatles <laughs> records very often had, because mm. the Hollies didn't have what I can only describe as the musical personality of the Beatles. And you can hear that every bit as well in the songs that they didn't originate as in the ones that they did. And, you know, so that particularly the first few records, there's, you know, loads of cover versions, as we now call them. I don't think anybody even called them that back in the day. They were just, they were just songs. Um, and you know all the kind of Motown things. I I I've come to the the view, possibly an unfashionable view. I think the likes of Please, Mister Postman, are better than the original. I think the Beatles' Roll Over Beethoven is better than Chuck Berry's Roll Over Beethoven. Doesn't apply to all Chuck Berry's records, but it applies to that one. You know because if you listen very often to the so-called originals. They're they're relatively thin compared to the way the Beatles did them, and and the Beatles were were in studio too at Abbey Road in in 1963, as you said. Would you say February the 11th? I think yeah. when they made when they made the whole of that that, <laughs> that first album, you know, mm-hmm. in three three what three three hour sessions, and then they had to add a little bit on at the end. Um, they were originating a very different way of playing music, a way of playing that y- you can't find traces of in America, actually. And, and there are loads of great records that came out of America. But they didn't sound like the Beatles. And um, Twists and Shouts are, you know, an interesting example because I think there have been two versions. The Isley Brothers had done one, and then I can't remember the name of the other group who did them. I, if you listen to them both... And listen, nobody likes the Isley Brothers more than I do. The Isley Brothers brilliant, brilliant group for years and years and years. But if you're going to listen to those early ones, they're kind of polite twisting records. They're the kind of thing that you can imagine Jackie Kennedy and David Frost doing a kind of, you know, scuffing up the carpet in the White House or whatever to, you know, to some kind of twist to that. They're vaguely kind of bossanoverish and whatever. And then you come to the Beatles version of it. And and the story I was told this by Alan Smith. Alan Smith, who was the worth the enemy at the time, came from Liverpool, and he was with the Beatles some of that day when they were making that first record. He was in the canteen with them downstairs, and they needed to do one more song because they were short. Because for some reason they recorded it won't be long. Was it uh, won't be long? I think well, it hold was. me tight. I think hold me tight. And then yeah. they thought we'll hold that yeah. over. I don't know why, yeah. but they did, and. Um, and so they needed another one. And presumably they needed a, a, a climax or something. And so he said, why don't you do that thing that sounds like La Bamba? Uh, 
And they said, what's that? And he sang it back. I said, oh, twist and shout, because, you know, they'd done it loads of times. And you listen, and then they go back in studio two, and they do two takes. I don't think they even get through the second take, you know, but it's pretty much all there in the first one. And and the kind of the attack of, of the Beatles' twist and shout has no precedent in popular music. There isn't, there isn't a case of that. You know, they kind of... I always think, I often think one of the genius things about the Beatles that we really underestimate is is the intensity with which they could come into a song. You know, my theory about pop groups is the worse they are, the longer the introduction is. Yes? <laughs> so ropey indie groups doing sessions on Radio 1 or whatever, or 6 Music or whatever... If you get an interminable introduction, that usually means they're all trying to get into time. They're all trying to line up with each other, and then eventually the vocalist will come in. You listen to the Beatles records, It Won't Be Long, which I just mentioned. It's a classic case of this. It won't be long. You know, I mean, imagine that. The confidence you've got to have to do that and to know that you're going to do it right, right at the beginning. Uh, you know, yeah, she loves are, you. Another she great loves you. Help, you know. The intensity with which Helm starts, you know, even 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 years later, things like Penny Lane, you know, just absolutely flies off. So it's it's not taking a lot of time to get you up to speed. It's it's started at the speed, and you have to catch up. And twists and shouts are kind of classic case of this. And so what you've got in their version of it is is of what you might call a rave up. It's it's a different thing from from what had happened in popular music before, and you know thanks to Norman Smith's use of you know compressors, which they were starting to use in in recording, which was a way to um, kind of narrow the range between highs and lows, so that um, you got something that punched through the radio far more than you know if you go and listen to if you go and listen to cliff richards movies you know it's a good record okay it's nothing like as good as twist you know what i mean it's pretend compared to twist and chat you know the, they had made rock and roll records at abbey road before they made johnny kidd and the pirates shot ruin and the blues and all those things they're pretend compared to what the beatles did and um and the other thing that goes out through Twist and Shout, which comes out through loads of their early stuff, is their absolute joy at doing what they're doing and what's happening to them while they're doing it. So you then get into this kind of extraordinary virtuous loop where they were kind of feeding off the excitement that was coming their way and giving it back to people. You know, so she loves you, which... Uh, you know, I think she loves you. Was was actually released? Was it released six? How many years ago? Sixty years yeah, ago. 60, yeah, sixty. Yeah, yeah. This year, 60, yeah. pretty much this week or something. It's not far off. And uh, you know, they always say that um, 
that when they were recording "She Loves You," that was um, that was the day a load of Beatle fans got into Abbey Road uh, and went and went racing through the the halls looking for a Beatle. And consequently, when the Beatles went in the studio to do it, some of that excitement was still coursing through everybody's veins, you know. And uh, she loves you. You know, on that day, Norman Smith, you know, they, they, they'd had, you know, what did they have? They had love me, do that, please, please me. They'd have from me to you. And I think those are all okay records. They're not brilliant. They're okay but then he thought, what are they going to do next? And he went and looked on the music stand and Paul or somebody had written the lyrics down. And he thought, well, they've, they've screwed it this time. <laughs> they've, <laughs> they've pushed it too far. They've lost it. <laughs> There's nothing here. There's nothing here. It says, she loves you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She lo-. And of course, he was absolutely right. There is nothing there. There's nothing there at all. You or I, the greatest musicians in the world, can't sing She Loves You tomorrow and make it anything but but a kind of placeholder. It's a terrible song. It's a brilliant record. That's my point. It's an astonishing record. And why is it an astonishing record? Because of the Beatles. Now, can you imagine, going back to the Hollies, give the Hollies the same songs that the Beatles did. Are they making great records of them? I don't think they are, myself. Because they're not the Beatles. One of the remarkable things is the vocal performance, especially given the information we know that John had a very bad cold throughout the whole album recording. Yeah, and yeah. this is at the end of that recording, so he's yeah. absolutely in bits. Absolutely. And, and they couldn't afford to stay the following day because they were due to do two shows the following day. Two shows, I think I'm right in saying, on different sides of the Pennines. <laughs> okay, yeah. that's a workload. You tell that to the youth of today. <laughs> you know, right, it's, just, it's mm. absolutely astonishing with a cold. Yeah. But you know, it must have been just sheer adrenaline and excitement, and excitement about me making an LP, making a whole LP in 1963. I can't tell you how exciting that would be to you know a bunch of chances from Liverpool who never thought they'd get inside any recording studio, studio, let alone Abbey Road, never thought they'd make a record, let alone an LP. Because you mentioned uh, Norman Smith, didn't you? I had a great quote about that, that um, apparently while they were doing Twist and Shout, they treated the control room staff as their audience, pretending they were in a live performance. John was stripped to the waist (laughs) to do the vocal. So picture that with his cold stripped to the waist. The next morning, Norman Smith said he took the tape around the studio saying to everybody, what the hell do you think of this? (laughs) Uh, Chris Neal told that story. got the ep here which i'm looking at and uh, and it's got the famous picture on the front of the four of them leaping in the air wearing their suits on a bomb site and i have to tell you i am um, i was a few years ago i was at uh, a literature festival in in guernsey in the channel Islands, and i i was signing books and there was 
a queue of people and there was this rather mild elderly lady who looked like a retired head teacher uh, came towards me to get a book signed and she proffered me her business card which is only tiny and it had that picture on the cover because she was the one who'd taken that picture really uh, yes okay. i think her name's fiona russell she subsequently died certainly fiona i think fiona russell because uh, obviously in those days you didn't get your name you didn't get your credit on the, on the thing and uh, and she was telling me that she'd um, you know she at the time she was a young photographer in london just trying to make a living any way she could and she was doing stuff for the the pop magazines i don't know fabulous whoever else and um and so she had found this uh, this bomb site near Euston Station and decided that would be a good place to take them. She said, because they came from Liverpool, therefore I thought we have some we would have something that felt a bit northern. And, and of course, it, it is genuinely, we overuse the word iconic nowadays. That is iconic. Oh, yeah. absolutely, yeah. And I had to pull this lady pretty much out, the, out, of, the, uh, out of the queue and pretty much address the whole room. See, do you realise what this lady did? Because <laughs> that is such an absolutely extraordinary, extraordinary picture. And it's it's really funny. I've just been writing a thing for the Radio Times about it's the Radio Times 100th anniversary coming up and, and they're doing a thing with a load of old covers uh, over the years. And they've got a cover of the Beatles from around about this time, 90, no, December 1963. And I think it's probably the first time the Beatles were on the cover of, of, of Radio Times. And it's quite interesting to me that that the way they're presented is what you might call disembodied heads. You know, they're four, four little heads floating around. And it's really early 60s. That is so early 60s. And it's so fundamentally wrong because <laughs> because actually... What always mattered with bands subsequently, and the Beatles particularly, was where they were. It was it was them interacting with their with their surroundings, or them being in a place that you would recognise, not floating around in space. You know, I'm sure a lot of that was just designers to think, oh bloody hell, I've got to accommodate four people. Oh, come on, can't be doing that. Cut their heads out. <laughs> Whereas, whereas the cover of Twist and Chat has them in a kind of urban landscape. I mean, they must have been knackered. They, they probably just got all the train for Liverpool. They didn't feel like doing anything at all. We come and leap up and down on top of a, a broken down wall. Yeah, all right. You've spoken very eloquently or written very eloquently about how much joy they brought to the world in the early 60s. And, and, and you know, it is that energy of that picture and also of, the, of Twist and Shout, which is basically a series of imperative verbs, isn't it? You know, yeah, yeah, on, yeah. twist, yeah. shout. You know. Absolutely. <laughs> we, absolutely. And of course, it was the closer of the act and they always had to do it. And, you know, and I, I got my mate Alex, who now is a musician, and and one of the things he does is he plays in 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 Beatles kind of you know cover bands and you know he goes on cruises being John Lennon and the Beatles you know and they do all kinds of things they do an early set and then they do a psychedelic set and all that. What's the one thing they always 
always have to finish with twist and shout yeah Go well uh, bruce springsteen then did his high park gig with it didn't he? <laughs> and you get you still go, working you, yeah it still works you know yeah. well particularly for somebody of bruce springsteen's generation which is the same as mine you know mm. that was that to me brings back the beatles and beatlemania uh, more richly than anything else. I mean, I, I was, when I wrote this thing in the Radio Times, I'm reminiscing once more about my uncle Stan, who used to come and visit us at Christmas. And on Christmas 1963, my sister and I had got got with the Beatles. And he said, what you got there? And we showed it this thing. And he said, let me tell you, I'm going to come back next Christmas and you'll have completely forgotten about this <laughs> I know he could the, have been right many, many other times. He might absolutely. Have been right yeah. I think poor sod. Why couldn't he pick Jerry and the Postmakers or Freddie? <laughs> <and the Dread? laughs> That's know. great. But you, you. I mean, he, they performed it regularly from '62 to 1965, so nearly all of their kind of touring career. And then, of course, as you say, I think it became the sound of Beatlemania in a way because when they went on Sunday night at the London Palladium. 13th of October 1963, which was watched by 15 million viewers. That was the the song they ended with. And even more significantly at the Royal Variety performance in November, of course, this is the one where John famously introduced it. Rattle your jewellery. Yeah. For our last number, I'd like to ask your help. For the people in the cheaper seats, clap your hands. <laughs> and the rest of you, if you just rattle your jewellery. We'd like to sing a song called Twist and Shout. I think it was the sound that most people would have identified with the Beatles with most readily at the time. Also, don't forget, it's got it's got the word twist in, and twist was a key thing at the time because you know is it the only beatles record that's got the name of a dance in it in the title i don't might know be. it, it might, might be. well be to... yeah and yeah. uh you know, it was the... a bit out of date the twist by then wasn't it oh it was but it was you know it, it, if you were on sunday night at the london palladium it would still be fine because that was not a it was not a youth environment you know no. it's a family environment you know and there they are. I was looking again at the same time. There they are, you know, on, on Malcolm Wise show on ITV around about the same time, doing Moonlight Bay while uh, you're wearing straw boaters. You know, they were, they were in the mainstream of popular entertainment. We were so So yeah, it was it was their finishing number all the time, and it was on both those massive TV shows. I mean, it's amazing audience, isn't it? Fifteen million, and then followed by twenty-eight million saw the Royal Variety Show. That's like half the population. Well, it's a sudden arrival of big television events. Pretty much coincides with the arrival of the Beatles. 
It hadn't happened before then, you know, because what had been the big television events, you know, Coronation, when's that, 1953? Well, most people haven't got a television at that time. You know, I I can remember, well, I can't remember. I remember being told that we went to our neighbours to watch it. I don't really remember at all. No, the first major news event I remember is the Munich air crash, Manchester United. And the first big thing that I remember getting to know about through television was Kennedy's assassination, which is obviously about the same time, 22nd of um, November, 1963. And then the funeral takes place a week later and is a world broadcast television event. And people say there will never again be so much excitement around... Well, excitement, wrong word. So much attention around a television event. And then two months later, the Beatles appear on the Ed Sullivan show. Right, yeah. Because so like the world was being primed for the notion that, that you could share an event via television. Because that's the other thing. During the, you know, the, the, the golden age of the 7-inch 45, 63, 64, 65, 66, you hardly ever heard records played on British radio. Didn't happen. Because there were needle time agreements between the Musicians' Union and the BBC restricting the number of records that could be played a day. So if you heard, you know, I want to hold your hand and you were dead excited to hear it, there was no guarantee you were going to hear it again in the next week. So you listened in a completely different way. You, you know, you internalised everything. Whereas television was appointment viewing, you know, it was kind of the Beatles are going to be the guest on Morgan Wise or Sunday Night on the Palladium or whatever. That if you did, you watched them probably more than you heard them. What do you like being famous? Well, it's not like in your day, you know. <laughs> what? <laughs> Like in my day. Well, my dad used to tell me about you, you know. In the old days. Well, so I've got a little dad, have you? Your <laughs> <laughs> dad used to tell me. It's a bit strong, isn't it? No, he's right. All right, Bonzo! Swingo! Yeah, him as well. Tell him off, they've done enough. What do you mean, done enough? No, well, they're getting insulted, though. <laughs> The song's in D major. It's, it outlines a dominant chord, which is the, the chord that always pushes you back to the root. It's the A7 in this case. John sings an A, George sings a C sharp, Paul sings an E, and then we get the seventh, and that's really tense. And it, the crescendo sounds very orgasmic, doesn't it? I mean, the whole song does. The Beatles' kind of sex appeal was oddly kind of... You never need to, to talk about it. I mean, it's it's kind of quite interesting to me. It's only looking at it years later, you go, oh, God, yes, Paul and John wait, shaking their hair as they got as they gathered around the Paul and George, uh, as they gathered around the microphone going, ooh, or whatever. You think, oh, yeah, I can kind of see that. Uh, at the time, you didn't. It was just joy. It was just, oh, my God, this is so exciting. And, uh, you know... It was it was doing something to you that you didn't know you had no experience of being done before actually, because it didn't sound like fifties rock and roll. It sounded like something different, and I think there's also 
there was something that I'm not sufficiently musical to be able to analyse. I think there's something about the fact that they are singing and they're playing at the same time that makes it sound different. You know, there's a kind of, there's a joint effort about them. There's, there's an edge about them that doesn't happen when you've got a bunch of singers and then you've got a bunch of musicians. These are the same people doing it, you know, and that that's the sound of the 60s. Really. Especially on Please Please Me, where they didn't do any overdubs. It was all, you know, take one, take two, take three, and then they're on to the next song. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Then when you saw them doing on telly, it was, you know, it was even more the case, you know. So that there was a kind of, there was an edge, there was a crackle about them. And nothing was rehearsed as we would imagine it today, you know. John Lennon was always down on himself, wasn't he? There's a few interview clips where he says he didn't like it and he said, I could have done that better. That's a standard thing. Musicians always think, they always think, oh, I'd like to have that and go at that. And we as the public think, no, for God's sake, whatever you do, do not mess with that. Because because the truth about records is after they're out, they belong to us. They're not musicians anymore. You know, We've heard them more than they've heard them. We know them better than they know them. They don't. They don't listen to them in the same way at all. And John Lennon had a kind of. He obviously had a problem with his voice. He didn't like the way he sounded. So he's he's like, was it George Michael who was only photographed from one side, wasn't he? That's right. And that was there was obviously some reason for that that was evident only to George Michael, not to anybody else in the world. And it was the same thing with John Lennon and his voice, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. There was something he didn't like about it. You know, that's why Ken Townsend invented electronic double tracking at Abbey Road so they wouldn't have to do it again, you know. Um, I mean, George Martin said it sounded like his larynx was ripping, didn't he? Well, he does. Yeah, you you can hear the flam. You know, know, but I suppose the hero of that is Norman Smith, you know, the engineer who, who was not particularly their generation at all. It was a bit more of a jazzer, really. Um, but but he said he wanted he wanted it to feel live. He wanted it to sound live, and it does. And actually, it sounds better than live, you know, because actual live wouldn't sound like that at all. It's got that uh, combination of kind of seduction and punch about it. Later, it was used at the end of Ferris Bueller's Day Off. You heard that version. Where, oh, no. I don't know how they did this, but Paul McCartney was incensed because they, they took the Beatles um, recording and added brass to it. Oh, my good God. What an abomination. Yeah, and McCartney said, I saw Twist and Shout and Ferris Bueller's Day Off, which I liked as a film, but they'd overdubbed some lousy brass on the stuff. Jesus. If it had needed brass, we'd have stuck it on ourselves, he said. Absolutely <laughs> bloody right. Well, no, 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 definitely not. Now, you're not the only person to say it's a favourite Beatles song. Um, apparently, Bruce Lee uh, is quoted as saying that. I have, can't find the quote, unfortunately, but he's been attributed. But um, I did get a quote from Lois Wilson in Mojo of July 2006, who said, this is the closest they ever got to caging their early 60s live show. 
so yeah, it's it's uh, certainly got perennial appeal. As we said, it was recently used to finish off a show in Hyde Park by Bruce Springsteen. And it's interesting if you watch that YouTube clip because it's not just the oldies; it's the young kids dancing around, loving that sound. Well, it's um, is everybody knows that stuff, you know. It's kind yeah. of it's in the air now nowadays, isn't it? Everybody recognises that sound. Yeah. And of course. The whole concept of this show, the whole conceit of it is is uh, deeply flawed to ask somebody to say their favourite Beatles song. But if you had to name a few more, what would be on your list? Well, I I, <laughs> I have different theories all the time. I can riff about the Beatles all day long. I frequently <laughs> do. Um, you know, I think the greatest album is A Hard Day's Night because it's just, you know, w- before Hard Day's Night, nobody had ever made a record like Hard Day's Night. We're going to go in the studio. With a load of songs we've get this written ourselves, all of them, yeah, yeah. all of them, not even George, it's just John and Paul, and they're all going to kind of sound as if they come out of a similar stylistic mould, but they'll all be sufficiently different that it won't be boring at all. It's just, it's just it's absolutely great. extraordinary. Yeah, you know, the whole culture of bands, you know, which goes through to kind of. Britpop beyond, all oh, it's all rooters in a hard day's night. That's what they all want to do. Is you know this is not just a record; it's an artistic statement. And we are not just the songwriters; we are not just performers. We are what will be called in the film world auteurs. We're in charge of the whole thing. We author it. It is us, and that's just an absolutely astonishing achievement. Personal favourites, things like No Reply. I adore No Reply from the beginning of Beatles for Sale. Yeah. You know, and again, another brilliant case of starting in the middle. Start in the middle and finish soon afterwards. It's just good advice for absolutely everything in life. Um, yeah. You know, this happened once before when I came to you at all, No Reply. The yeah. middle eight of No Reply, most bands would consider that sufficient to retire on. If I were you, I'd realize I'd love you more than any other guy. And I'll forgive the lies that I heard before when you gave me no Noel Gallagher must listen to that. Just weep. <laughs> you know, that's that's the middle eight of a, of a of a song that they didn't even put out as a single. And uh, you know, I suppose the things I'm always keen on, keenest on, are the things from what I always call their personal pronoun period. You know, which is the early days, which is it's songs about me and you and her and him and you know, so forth. So you know, we can work it out. Things like that. I I do like Beatles for Sale, oddly enough, just because of those those really good songs at the beginning of it. Um, you know, so I like the things where they sound like a group. Um, you know, I can admire the later things, but they they don't sound quite so much like a group. And I get the feeling that the world nowadays prefers the later stuff because it's... It feels like it belongs to the same world as, I don't know, Oasis and Radiohead and Coldplay and so forth. When you get to Revolver and onwards, yeah. Anyway, it's They think, oh, it's cool. 
<laughs> and I think, yeah, you know, I remember them when they weren't cool, and they were better when they weren't cool. Um, you know, I, I remember working with a friend of mine years ago, and um, this was in the, the 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 first flush of Britpop when Oasis were absolutely all over the place. And he he confessed to me he'd never he'd never really heard he'd never really he hadn't got a Beatles record. And anyway, he came in one Monday morning. He said, "I bought a Beatles record." this weekend oh yeah I didn't like it I said let me guess let me guess did you buy let it be he said yeah I did I said, <laughs> I said how did you know that I said because you bought the one on the cover of which they mo looked most like Oasis didn't you because you know people people don't listen with their ears anymore they listen with their eyes you know <laughs> It's it's what's cool, what looks right, all that stuff, and everything else follows. Did you read Ian McDonald's book? There's a great yeah, article yeah. where he talks about the tripartite ways we we can people like pop music. It's the lyrics, the music, and the sort of attitude. Right. And most people only have two of those that they that they get into. <laughs> so a band like The Clash, um, they're not being appreciated for the music or the lyrics. It's no, mostly the sort of attitude. Yeah. Well, I have another way of looking at it. I, ha I didn't know about that theory. I will say it's a pie chart. It's a pie chart where you can divide it on two on two different um, criteria. And one is talent, and the other is charisma. Yes. So, Oasis, 90% charisma, 10% talent. Bee Gees, 90% talent, 10% charisma. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Bob Dylan, you know, 50% charisma, 50% talent. Beatles, probably 50% charisma, 50% talent. That's the way I look at it. It's a good mix, isn't it? 50%. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's yeah. not a bad mix. You mentioned there some of the stories from your book, Abbey Road. Um, how should people follow you? I mean, you've got various outlets for your writing and uh, your podcast now. Well, I, I'm davidhepworth.com. I've got a site which I suppose has got links to whatever else I do. And mm -hmm. I do a, uh, a podcast and various similar things with a YouTube channel with Mark Allen under Word in Your Ear. So if you just look up Word in Your Ear on YouTube, you'll find it. You'll find us there. I'll put the links yeah. in the podcast notes as well. Yeah. Yeah, and I can obviously I highly recommend all your books, but particularly um, why the Beatles are underrated, which of <laughs> course shines very well with this show. Absolutely. <laughs> Thank you so much for spending time with me today to talk about the Beatles and Twist and Shout. It was great. Thank you. Thank, thank you very much. It's always a good way to start the day talking about the Beatles. Thanks for listening to my favourite Beatles song. If you like the podcast, please leave a review or rating as this helps us to reach new listeners. You can follow the podcast on Facebook and Instagram at My Favourite Beatles Song and Twitter at, at My Fave Beatles. See you next time.